Back on the big one, 700 WLW, Dan Carroll in for Bill Cunningham. It is 1238, and we continue to uh, deal with the aftermath of what happened in Kansas City, the the, the shooting there. I, I just did a Google search on the uh, a shooters identified. I know there's a couple of teenagers, a couple of uh, uh, underage teenagers who are under arrest for this, but it was my understanding when, it, when the arrest happened that there was also uh, an adult. So a couple of juveniles and an adult. Uh, to my, I cannot find where that adult has been identified yet. Uh, I cannot find where there have been any charges that have uh, been filed yet. And all all I'm seeing is that the shooting may have stemmed from a personal dispute. And so the uh, the police work there. Far be it for me to criticize police and the, and the work they do. But uh, I'm a little surprised that we don't have a lot more information than this. Uh, but in any case, when this shooting happened, the standard calls came out from uh, from anti-gun advocates, from left-wing politicians, from the White House, that uh, we need to do more. We need to pass more laws, and we need to further restrict guns from law-abiding citizens. There is uh, no one who is a, a better expert on this issue than Dr. John Lott. He is uh, an economist, world-recognized expert on guns and crimes, and he uh, is the uh, founder of the, uh, well, the, uh, I, I just lost it here. I had it right in front of me. But let's bring him in anyway. And he can tell me what he's, <laughs> I just, I don't, I want to, crimeresearch.org. Crimeresearch.org, John Lott, is the, is the your organization online. And thank you again for being here on 700 WLW. How are you? Do, doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's great to have you on. I want to play, I want to play Corinne Jean-Pierre from just the other day. And here's what she said about shootings in this country, and I want to get your reaction to this. So, Dave, let's hit that Corinne Jean-Pierre from the White House press briefing room just uh, yesterday. We've now had more mass shootings in 2024 than, have, than there have been days in the year. Got to think about that one. Through executive action and implementation of the Bipartisan Safer Community, Communities Act, the president has taken action to keep guns out of dangerous hands by expanding red flag laws, enhance, enhancing background checks, and cracking down on gun trafficking while also making historic investment in violence prevention. But as we all know, it is not enough. Congress must act. Congress needs to act. And it is shameful that we have not seen more action on this. So there you go, uh, John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center. Uh, is it true? that we have had more shootings, more mass shootings this year in 2024 than we have had days of the year. And and if that's true, I have to admit that way, that one just blew right by me because I didn't see it. Right. But I mean, it depends on how you define it. Uh, there's a gun control group called the gun violence archive, which puts uh, this, the data together that they're using and what they define a mass shooting as, technically three or more, four or more people injured and or killed. So it doesn't necessarily involve people who are shot, they say, but they actually include cases where there's three or more people injured. And uh, the problem is what will often happen is you'll have a couple of weeks ago when the Uvalde shooting report came out, the president will go and say, you know, we, we had Uvalde and we've had 600 shootings like this. 
And they're really comparing apples and oranges. Uh, obviously, the Uvalde uh, tragedy, where you had 21 people murdered there, uh, is that the types of cases that they're talking about are about 80% of them are drug gangs fighting against each other over drug turf. Most of the rest are robberies that are occurring where somebody's been harmed. So there are other types of crimes versus Uvalde or you know, where somebody goes into a public place, whether it's a grocery store or a mall or a school or someplace like that with the express purpose of just trying to kill people to get media attention. And so the causes and solutions for stopping a drug gang fighting, and I think the Kansas City shooting that we just had, uh, as you mentioned, they haven't said, you know, haven't identified who the people are that they've taken in which is pretty unusual, uh, but it's, I'm willing to bet a fair amount of money that it's uh, another drug gang type shooting that you have going on there. That, uh, you know, the causes and solutions for those are very different than these types of mass public shootings where the point is to try to get attention. When anybody reads the diaries or manifestos of these mass murderers, what you'll find is that there are people who are suicidal but they want to get media attention. They feel unappreciated. They want the world to know that they were here. And they know the more people they kill, the more media attention that they're going to get. And they know that if they go to a place where victims aren't able to go and defend themselves, they're going to be able to go and kill more people successfully. The thing that kind of drives me crazy with regard to the news coverage is that the news media just refuses to ever report those portions of the manifestos and diaries where these mass murderers explicitly talk about their motives. I mean, I can understand why the media doesn't want to give attention to them saying that they're trying to do this to get media attention. But the media also doesn't report why they pick the targets that they do. And you would think that would be newsworthy. You'd think people would want to know why these murderers keep saying over and over and over again why they pick the targets that they do. And maybe somebody can provide me with a benign explanation for why the media refuses to cover that part, but uh, it's not obvious to me what, what the reason would be, at least a benign explanation. Yeah, on the uh, crimeresearch.org website, there's uh, a piece on here, the uh, Washington Times extensive discussion of uh, research on mass public shooters. And I find uh, one of the uh, the graphs, and you've got many on uh, on this piece, but uh, they, they talk about background checks and the, percenting, or, or the percentage of shootings that would have been stopped with universal background checks. And the number that you have here, um, according to the Washington Times, is uh, 100% would not have been stopped with universal background checks. So why is it, uh, John Lott, that we continuously hear uh, this being pushed as something that needs to happen in order to curb these uh, instances of gun violence that we see? Right. Well, I mean, just when the Uvalde report came out, uh, Biden went out there, had a uh, presentation, and the number one solution that he offered to these mass public shootings was these universal background checks, these background checks on the private transfers of guns. No one asked 
anybody in the administration, would it have stopped the Uvalde shooting? Because it wouldn't have stopped it. Even if it had been in effect and been perfectly enforced. No one asks, well, would it have stopped any mass public shooting this century? And the answer is no. And so, you know, I, I don't know why the media doesn't ask. It seems like that would be an obvious question for people to say. You keep putting this up. This is your number one solution. Would it have stopped this recent attack that you're talking about? Uh, I mean, I think the reason why they push this is just to make it costly for people to be able to go and have guns and also uh, to complete their, their gun registry that they have. About two years ago now, it was revealed that the Biden administration had put together a computerized database of almost 1 billion transactions on guns that have occurred over many decades. Uh, they don't have all, all the transactions that are there because there have been private transfers of guns. Uh, you know, it's against the federal law for them to put together a registry, but they say they think they are, have found a, a loophole in that they say, well, we can put together a registry as long as we don't use it. And so we're not violating the law because we haven't actually used this computerized database yet. Database yet. But, you know, presumably at some point in the future, they're going to want to use it. But the reason for, uh, you know, for this uh, trying to get the background checks on all private transfers is so they have a record of who owns, who owns the guns. Now, they go and claim that this is important for solving crime. The thing is, you can look at places in the United States or in other countries where we have uh, gun registration and licensing, and yet they can't point to any crimes that have been solved. You know, in theory, if a criminal leaves a gun at the crime scene and it's registered to the criminal, then you can go and trace the gun back to the criminal and find out who committed the crime. The problem is, is that Crime guns are virtually never left at the crime scene. And the few times that they are left at the crime scene, it's usually because the criminal's been either killed or, or seriously wounded, so you caught them anyway. And the once or twice beyond that, that uh, they're left at the crime scene, uh, they're not registered. And the once or twice that they are registered, they're not registered to the person who committed the crime. Um, I testified a while ago in Hawaii that had registration licensing since 1960. The, I told the legislators who were inviting me to ask the Honolulu police chief in advance two questions so that he'd be able to answer them when he testified. One was how many crimes had they been able to solve since 1960? And the other one, what was the cost? And he said he'd looked carefully, couldn't find one single crime that they'd been able to solve as a result of licensing and registration. He also said that the process took about 50,000 hours of police time each year to go and run the registration licensing. That's 50,000 hours worth of police time that could have been used to do useful things that we know the police are good at doing. If they'd been able to point to a thousand crimes or a hundred crimes that they had solved or a dozen or even three, since 1960, at least you'd have some trade-off there. But here we're taking 50,000 hours worth of police time from things that we know work 
and, and putting into something that produces no benefit in terms of reducing crime. In fact, I would argue it probably is even kind of productive because you're making it more difficult for good law-abiding citizens to be able to go and protect themselves. Yeah, and it, it always seems to me that uh, th- this narrative is right under the surface that that we need to be afraid of law-abiding gun owners. We need to be afraid of people who are members of the NRA because, oh, these are the people that have the guns. These are the ones who uh, who go off the hook. And it, by and large, uh, Dr. Lott, I, I see that as not being true uh, time and time again. We see that uh, these individuals who uh, wind up doing these sorts of things uh, usually have some sort of a history of mental illness. Uh, why, why is it so hard for us to get serious about uh, keeping guns out of the hands of people with mental illness, people who have contact with the system, people who've been on the radar of the FBI? It seems to me like time and time and time again, the people involved in these shootings are the, those types of individuals and not law-abiding citizens. You know, I, I read one account of uh, the shooting in, in uh, Kansas City where one witness said uh, one of the individuals involved in the shooting uh, held his gun out at arm's length and just spun around in a 360-degree circle firing his weapon. Uh, is, is, does, right. does anyone in their right mind think that another gun law is going to make a dime's worth of difference to someone like that? Well... The problem is, if it is, in fact, uh, gangs that were fighting against each other there, you know, people see how difficult it is to stop drug gangs from getting a hold of illegal drugs to be able to go and sell. And the thing is, it's not like these drug gangs can go to the police and say, look, this other gang stole our drugs. Can you help us get them back? They have to set up their own little militaries in order to try to protect that extremely valuable property that they have. And the thing is... You know, if I could click my fingers and cause all guns in the United States to disappear and all illegal drugs, how long do you think it would be before illegal drugs started coming back into the country? 20 minutes if you're in El Paso? And and how long would it be before they'd bring in the weapons that they need to protect that extremely valuable property? They'd be bringing them in at the same time. And, and, you know, the notion that somehow you're going to be any more successful in stopping drug gangs from getting guns than you've been and able to stop them from being able to go and, and get illegal drugs just isn't serious. And the problem is, is that these gun control laws are going to primarily overwhelmingly disarm law-abiding citizens relative to criminals. You know, it'd be great if you could uh, take the guns primarily away from criminals, but you have to be careful that you're not going to accomplish the opposite of what you'd like to have. You know, you look at surveys of police. Police overwhelmingly believe private ownership of guns is important for stopping crimes. Uh, Police One, which is the largest uh, private organization of police in the country with about 450,000 members. They surveyed their members, and they found that 76% of police officers think that private ownership of guns are either extremely or very important uh, in terms of reducing violent crime. They know in their own lives how important it is. And even though research, I mean, my research shows that police are the single most important factor for reducing crime, the thing is, Police themselves know that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. 
And they realize how important it is for people to be able to go and protect themselves when the police aren't able to be there on the scene in order to protect people. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Lott, we gotta, we've got to have about a minute left. But uh, you talking about that, what you just said, uh, it, well, I wanted to ask you a question about that. What, what is your take on the individuals who were at this uh, event in Kansas City celebrating the Super Bowl championship? saw this uh, gunplay that was taking place and then decided on their own. How, how about the bravery of these citizens who went and tackled these individuals and held them until police were come, uh, were able to come and, ma and make the arrest? Uh, to me, that seems like an attitude that is uh, more pervasive in this country these days than it might have been years ago. I mean, one can only be thankful that they're heroes like that in our society who are willing to put their lives on the line. But what I can say is that, and it doesn't get much attention, is heroes in many different ways stop these types of crimes. And one of the things that doesn't get attention is how frequently legally armed civilians stop these types of attacks. If you look over the nine years from... Uh, uh, 2014 through 2022, what you'll find is that about 40% of the active shooting attacks in the United States were actually stopped by citizens legally carrying concealed handguns. Uh, if you look at places which are people are allowed to carry, you know, excluding gun-free zones where it's illegal for the permit holders to be able to carry, you find about 60% of the active shooting cases were stopped by legally armed civilians. On our website, we, at crimeresearch.org, we collect cases where police have said, if it wasn't for the presence of a concealed carry permit holder, uh, it would have been a mass public shooting. And just since the beginning of 2020, we have like 40 cases on our website, uh, just like that. But these cases rarely get news attention, even though you have very heroic actions where many lives were saved. And the bizarre thing is, many times these occur right after a bad attack occurred that got uh, uh, massive attention. I'll give you one quick example. If you look at the Pulse nightclub shooting, mm -hmm. that was the worst mass public shooting in U.S. history at the time. 49 people were killed. One week after that, there was an, a similar attack at a nightclub in South Carolina. Three people were shot. He was shooting at a fourth when a concealed carry permit holder seriously wounded the attacker. He still had 125 rounds of ammunition on him. It only got local news attention, even though the Pulse nightclub shooting just a week earlier was still getting international news attention at the time. The difference between the two cases in Florida, concealed handguns were banned in places that got more than 50% of their revenue from serving alcohol. South Carolina was one of the 40 states that allowed people to carry. Well, Dr. John Lott, uh, Crime Prevention Research Center. It is always great having you on. Uh, I don't think there's anyone that looks at this with a, a more level head than you do. And uh, thank you for the work you do, and, and thank you for coming on to uh, talk to us here on 700 WLW. It's always great having you on, and, and until next time, sir, all the best to you, and uh, keep up the great work. Thank you very much for being there. All right, there you go, Dr. John Lott, Crime Prevention Research Center, and it is crimeresearch.org. Check it out for yourself. 1257.
Dan Carroll from Bill Cunningham on 700 WLW.